Welcome to The Table. You are listening to the Kingstown Communion podcast with lead pastor Michelle Matthews. The Kingstown Communion is a new United Methodist Church existing to gather people into communion with Jesus Christ through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. For more information about upcoming events and opportunities to serve, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Kingstown Communion. We're glad that you're listening along with us. If you live close by, we hope you'll join us for worship in person. And if you ever feel so inclined to help us by giving financially, you can do so on our website, kingstowncommunion.net. first reading today is from Deuteronomy chapter 8. The entire commandment that I command you today you must diligently observe so that you may live and increase and go in and occupy the land that the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember the long way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness in order to humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments. He humbled you by letting you hunger, then by feeding you with manna, with which neither you nor your ancestors were acquainted, in order to make you understand that one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The clothes on your back did not wear out, and your feet did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a parent disciplines a child, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Therefore, keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with flowing streams, with springs and underground waters, welling up in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you may eat bread without scarcity, where you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron, and from whose hills you may mine copper. You shall eat your fill and bless the Lord your God for the good land that he has given you. The second reading is from Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 through 16. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David, it is too little for you to weary mortals, that you weary my God also. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child, and shall bear a son, and shall name him Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey by the time he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land before whose two kings you are in, dread will be deserted. The word of God for the people of God. There we go. We have been uh, starting a new sermon series called uh, Wordle. If any of you all uh, 
have, you know, gotten addicted to this game, raise your hand. Hey, yay, good, all right, so, um, you know, uh, but it's not just a game. It's going to be a sermon series here, and this is our really week one. Last week, we gave an intro for it, um, and this week, we're going to get into our very first five-letter word. So if you ask a rabbi how many books are in the Hebrew Bible, what Christians now call, we call it the Old Testament, but if you ask a rabbi, they would tell you there are 24 books. If you ask a Catholic priest how many books are in the Old Testament, he will tell you 46. If you ask an Eastern Orthodox priest how many books are in the Old Testament, he will tell you 49 or possibly 50. If you ask a Protestant pastor like me how many books are in the Old Testament, you'll hear that there are 39. So how many books are really in the Old Testament? How did, how, did it, how did they even make it into the Old Testament? Why, why did they make it into the Old Testament? And for whom are they? Who are they for? And if it has anything to do with who wrote them, who the heck actually wrote these books? Notice that every time I asked this question, I asked how many books are in the Old Testament. So we will get to the New Testament another week, but we'll spend... We'll actually spend a lot of time there, I promise. But as we talk about this word today, we're going to plant ourselves in the Old Testament. And our first five-letter word in this series is canon. That's what these questions, what books, why, for whom, by whom, that's what these questions are summarized by in one single very academic word, canon. And this word actually comes from Latin and typically means rule or standard or perhaps ruler or measuring stick, the process by which certain writings come to be considered canonical. It's called canonization. But as we established up front, the fact that so many various religious bodies and Christian bodies still cannot agree upon what book should be included in the Old Testament, points to how complex this, this really is. And so first, let's, let's tackle the easy part of this. The various Jewish bodies agree that there are 24 books in the Bible. And these 24 are actually the same as the 39 that we claim as Protestants. And so here's how that works. Put this up here. Um, this is how they break it down. The, the two books of Samuel were originally one document. So the Jewish Bible lists them as one book. The two books of Kings were one book, one scroll in the Hebrew. The two books of Chronicles were the same, as were Ezra and Nehemiah combined, both thought to be written by Ezra. And two books of Chronicles, or the two books of Chronicles are the same. I already said that. And long ago, the Jews combined all the shorter prophets of the Bibles, known as the minor prophets. And they combined them not due to importance, but just because of length, into this book called the Twelve. And so 39 books in the Old Testament are 24 books in the Jewish Bible. And of course, the Jews don't call this the Old Testament. Unlike Christians and 
nominal Christians, they don't consider this book to be old or antiquated, as I've heard some of you call it, or in need of some enlightenment by the words of Jesus. That's why you might hear some Christians who want to take, um, want to really be reverent towards our, our Jewish brothers and sisters in faith. They, they, they will call it the Hebrew Bible because it's not old to them. Jews refer to these 24 books as the Bible, which they call the, the Tanakh, which is just an acronym for three major divisions of the Bible, which you see up here. The law, the prophets, and the writings. The law, the Torah, the prophets, Navim, the writings, Ketuvim. And so I want you to notice for a second the difference in the order from the Christian Old Testament because it will be crucial to helping us understand what this book is. Christians always begin with the law and then and then come the, the historical books from Joshua to Nehemiah, and then some poetry and some wisdom, and then finally the prophets. But Jews, they, they begin with the law, they move to the prophets, and then they finish up with all of the other writings. Notice that the writings in the Hebrew Bible include not only the wisdom and poetic literature like the Psalms and the Proverbs and the Song of Songs, but also the short stories of of heroes like Ruth and Esther and Daniel, as well as historical books like, like Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah, all traditionally thought to be written by Ezra. And, and Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah, they were all written after the Jews returned from exile. If we assume that Ezra did actually write these books, that's an assumption in itself, we, he, he drew upon the previously published accounts in the books of Samuel and Kings, which were compiled and edited while the Jews were in exile. But Ezra reworked the material to serve the needs of the community of Jews as they returned to Jerusalem to build the city and the temple and their, their life together in the promised land, which means Ezra left out certain details from Samuel and other certain details from, from kings that, that didn't serve the purposes of what Ezra was writing and who Ezra was writing to. He emphasized those things that would be helpful for reestablishing the people in this time. And so I want you to notice this for a moment because this should give us a much more complete picture of how the Bible came to be. We often think that the historical books of the Old Testament is simply attempting to tell the story of the king of Israel and Judah but telling the story or simply recounting history, it's not what was most important to the writers of these texts. These writers were writing to interpret the history in light of the needs of those to whom they wrote. There was an agenda behind their writing. History is told from the perspective of the teller, often to meet the needs of the people in a given time. And these books, all of them, were the work of, of thoughtful scribes who were carefully considering what parts of Israel's story needed to be told and how it needed to be told to address the real needs of the community for whom the story or book is being written. 
we've learned that the Jewish Tanakh and the Protestant Old Testament contain the same books in a different order, but before we consider why the Catholic and the Orthodox Old Testaments have fewer or more books, um, let's consider what it means to be in this canon. Let's consider what it means to be in this and how the process of selecting certain scrolls or documents as important even got started. So first, if you were to ask any Jewish rabbi, if you were to ask any rabbi what the most authoritative books in the Bible are, they would answer with no hesitation at all. You know what their answer would be? The Torah, the law of Moses. I was sitting on a plane one time reading some book, I don't remember what book, it was some book getting ready for a sermon series with you all, some book that was obvious on the cover that um, it was about the Bible in some way. And as I was pre preparing um, and reading, this always happens to me, somebody wants to talk to you about it. Somebody always wants to talk to me about this book on a plane. So this guy next to me said, you know, I've always thought it's amazing how, how God wrote out the entire Bible on, on tablets of stone. And I smiled and I trying not to give off the impression that I did, really did not feel like talking to him at all anyways, but I also, you know, didn't want to like, you know, bu burst his bubble too bad, but so gently, not trying, trying not to embarrass him, I said, it was actually only the Ten Commandments <laughs> that were written on stone tablets by the finger of God, you know, and he very, very, very sweetly and naively exclaimed, Oh, I always wondered how they carried that whole thing around. <laughs> if, you, if you ask a rabbi what the most authoritative books in the Bible are, that rabbi would always say it's the Torah, the, the first five, the law of Moses, the first five, the Pentateuch, the law of God, as some call it, the book of the covenant, as some call it, the law of Moses, the books of Moses, or simply sometimes they just call it Moses. And why? Because Moses. Everyone knows that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, right? Well, not so fast. They were originally ascribed to Moses, but since at least the 1600s, the idea has been completely debunked. First of all, the books themselves don't claim to be written by Moses. Second of all, they're in the third person talking about Moses. But there are other clues that, that tell us this too. Also, that Moses didn't write them. For instance, in Numbers, there is this verse that's, that says this. Now the man Moses was a very humble man, more so than anyone else on the entire face of the earth. <laughs> and the last eight verses in Deuteronomy describe Moses' death, which would have been very hard to do if you were Moses. Which brings us to the major dividing lines between those who talk about the Bible, those who study the Bible, and, the, and those who, who dig archaeologists, who, who, who are trying to find evidence of these things. Um, on, the, on the left, there, there's this field of archaeology, and they're often referred to as the minimalists. And they tend to be highly skeptical of the historical value of what's written in the Old Testament. They likely believe that Abraham and Moses, perhaps even David, 
are fictional characters. And they tend to interrupt <laughs> um, this, they, 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 they interrupt this stream of thought that these things were written by very particular people and interpret the archeological record as showing little to no historical support for the biblical accounts of events in the Old Testament, at least those dating back to Moses and the patriarchs. And then the maximalist archeologists on the right, they tend to believe that the Bible accounts entirely and is entirely accurate that given through time, the archeological evidence will eventually support the view that these things happen. There is a tendency among the most ardent maximalists to, to dismiss any archeological evidence that counters the biblical accounts. And we have the same in, in biblical scholars. These same categories exist. Sometimes we call them liberal and conservative, one tending to minimalize the, the historical reliability and factual, factuality of the events described in the Torah as myths, Other, others holding, holding despite plenty of evidence to the contrary, that Moses authored nearly the entire Torah and that it was written very nearly in the form we have it now in the 15th century before Christ. But if you ask a, a rabbi which books are most authoritative, no matter which rabbi you get, minimalist or maximalist, conservative or liberal, you'll hear them say Torah. Because as you heard in our scripture today, it contains God's covenant with God's people, and because it tells Israel's defining story of God, delivering them out of slavery and into the promised land. Did you hear it this morning as, as it was read? Remember the long way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness in order to humble you, testing you, to know what was in your heart and whether or not you will keep his commandments. It's the Torah. And these, these rabbis, they don't believe that God dictated this part of the Bible. And, and they don't even believe these are laws and promises for all time. Instead, when they, when they open up the Hebrew Bible, this canon of scripture, they, they believe that in this special way, these stories and these scriptures reveal the will and the essence and the character of God to humanity. And unlike what we call the Bible, the earliest rabbis, they, they canonized their holy text. They laid it out in a way that spoke to this authoritative order. First, the Torah comes first in their book because it has the most authority. Then the prophets, it comes second because it has the second most authority and then all the other writings. In fact, many of the rabbis debated up until the time of Christ whether some of the books in this last section called writings should be considered scripture at all. Like Esther and Song of Songs, they never mention God. Why are they in there? They would ask. Some debated whether Proverbs should ever be read aloud because there were at least two that directly contradicted each other. Like you could read one, and then it's the exact opposite. Ezekiel was debated because it, it had at least two visions, one of a chariot and one of the future temple that did not 
did not make sense compared to other visions that were claimed to be had, questioned by the rabbis. And so with all their questions and all their concerns about canonization, the rabbis ordered the canon with this in mind, with the most authoritative up front and the least authoritative in the back, which brings us to our Old Testament, not ordered that way at all. (laughs) It's important to note that our texts are in an order that somebody thought made sense. (laughs) Wouldn't it be so much easier if they were ordered like this? And what about those Catholic and Orthodox Old Testaments? (laughs) Tradition has it that about 300 years before the birth of Jesus, Jews had spread throughout the Greek-speaking world now. And about 70 or 72 Jewish scribes translated the law from Hebrew to Greek, a translation that was called the Septuagint, from the Latin word 70, these 70 Jewish scribes. This work of translating continued until sometime around 100 BC, and among them were at least 10 documents, not considered authoritative by Jews back in the Holy Land. But by the time of Jesus, there were two canons of the Old Testament now, the Palestinian canon and the Septuagint or Greek or or Alexandrian canon. The early church in the West ultimately accepted like seven of those books. And the early church in the East accepted at least seven of them. Sometimes they take all 10 of them. And it wasn't until Martin Luther that these books were were demoted by the Protestant um, reformers. As I said, the canon is complicated. And today we have countless copies of this canon on our shelves, right? And in, in the United States, we place our hands on it and swear by it in courts of law. And we have this thing that we can actually hold this book in so many different sizes and in so many different translations. But Jesus would not have had an Old Testament, a Hebrew Bible to carry along with him. Jesus didn't cart it around. Carrying 24 scrolls would have been impossible. The longest of these scrolls, Psalms, would have been about 30 feet long. A first century copy of Isaiah was was found among the Dead Sea Scrolls finally, and, and, and it was 11 inches by 24 feet. The scriptures for Jesus, which he quoted often, would have been read in the synagogue and expounded upon by the rabbis. It's possible that his family had one scroll at home. That would have been like a treat, a treat for a family at that time. But what we know is that despite not having it to hold, Jesus was immersed in scripture. Jesus' identity and mission were shaped by, by these readings. Jesus quoted often from Deuteronomy and considered himself the suffering servant of Isaiah and praised fervently the book of Psalms. And so of course we see Jesus when we read the Old Testament. We hear an echo of him in, in all over it. There are, there are many places, too, where, where what God does in the Old, Old Testament points toward what God will do through Jesus. 
And there are messianic expectations and promises and hopes that are clearly fulfilled in Jesus. But as we read these books, and as we worship the God of Jesus, we cannot forget how these scriptures came to be and how the earliest rabbis read and combined and ordered these texts like the passage from Isaiah today. Did you hear it? The the year is around 735 BC and Isaiah is quoting God, talking to to King Ahaz, yes, Ahaz of the kingdom of Judah. And and there are these two kings who who are preparing to attack Judah. King Ahaz and, and the people of Judah, well, they are absolutely terrified. And God speaks through Isaiah, offering a prophetic promise that the two kings preparing the attack will fail. And then in verse 14, God says to King Ahaz, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son, and and shall name him Emmanuel, and he shall eat curds and honey by the time he knows how to refuse the evil and to choose the good. And for before the child knows how to refuse the evil and to choose the good, the land before whose two kings you are in will be deserted. What is this passage prophesying? Who is the young woman? In the Greek, young woman translates to virgin. In the Hebrew Old Testament, it just translates to young woman. And the woman could be Isaiah's wife or another young woman. And in the the season of Advent, often we imagine this young woman to be the Virgin Mary. It is clear that the sign is that she'll give birth. And before the child knows how to refuse evil and choose good, this would be like the age at which children are accountable for their deeds, which the Jews believed was about 13. The land of these two kings, Ahaz feared, would be deserted. This prophecy was actually fulfilled in 722 BC, 13 years after Isaiah spoke it. The chances are that Matthew, who quoted it when Jesus was coming on the scene, when Jesus was was being prophesied, that Matthew knew that this had been fulfilled. What the gospel gospel writer Matthew saw in this story from Isaiah was a kind of foreshadowing of what God had done in Jesus. Jesus. God brought a child into the world through a young woman as a sign that God was with King Ahaz and God would do it again. A sign to the whole human race that God is with us in Emmanuel. You see, valuing the Hebrew canon up front, valuing the set of Hebrew scriptures can go a long way toward helping us understand what the Bible is. And it can be a lens into how we, we read scripture. If Matthew read Isaiah's prophecy, not as a prophecy of Jesus coming, but its fulfillment rather as good news that God would come in Jesus to meet us just like God came to meet Ahaz, 
How might we read this text as good news? How might we read it? How might we read it as if God could do this then? What might God do now? If we, if we read it like that, the canon is never closed, right? If we read it like that, the canon is never closed. It's not a book of prophecies that have been fulfilled in this one Jesus. It's a book all along showing us what God can do through the people of Israel and through Jesus, showing what God can do if God can do that. Can't God do that in your life too? Would you pray with me? God, we, um, we start with this book and we thank you that there is this rich history that predates, that predates Christianity. There have been people who have been wrestling with this text long before. And we have so long put our own um, assumptions onto it that um, are, are, we've gotten clouded to what it is. And, and we've heard many, many various arguments that of, of, God's, of God's word being um, without error and, uh, and arguments uh, um, that everything from the, from the word of God is, is exactly as it happened. And so we begin to forget that there were, there were people who first had these texts that did not ever consider them that way, that, that ordered them in, in their level of authoritativeness. That is a crazy thing to get in our brains when all we've ever heard is that they all are equally authoritative, that they ordered them. And so that might be good news for us today. We also, God, realize how important this is. So if we in our brains have written it off completely, if we have been people who have said the Old Testament makes no sense to me, the Old Testament is old, that we might reclaim it, <laughs> that we may find that the gifts of interpreting the New Testament come from the way we experience the old. And God, if we are people who are looking today for uh, you to show up in our lives. If anybody here is looking for you to show up to do a thing, God, to, 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 find a, to help them find a path to, to the career they know they want to be in, but they're miserable now, to, to help them find a path towards, toward, through, through infertility, to help them find a path through, through depression, to help them find a path through broken relationships, we are grateful, God, that you say when we come to these scriptures that it's not just a story that was then fulfilled in Jesus. It is a book that teaches us, God, that if you could show up then, you can show up now. If you could speak then, you can speak now. That the canon is really never closed because of that, because you're constantly writing our stories Thank you, God. We pray this in the name of Jesus, who taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, 
hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen.